Thanksgiving, I hope, has been good for you. I hope it's been a time where you've been renewed in gratitude. Um, maybe you overate. They haven't gotten a pill yet, have they, to alleviate the bad feeling of overeating? We've got lots of medicines for other things. We have a therapeutic society. Any kind of pain we have, we, we want to relieve that pain fast. And we train ourselves that way bodily. Um, and we do that mentally and emotionally too. We often feel the tension, uh, the grief and pain of loss or the tension of hostility or relationships that aren't quite right. And our first thought is to our shame really isn't, I hope you're honest along with me, uh, is not often like, how can I do good in this situation, but how can I make it stop? And I think when we come to Matthew 7, uh, wrap, uh, starting in verse 6, Jesus is wrapping up the, the Sermon on the Mount. He's, he's moving towards his conclusion. And um, I, that's the kind of issue that he brings up for us today to meditate on. He started the sermon by telling us that we were blessed when people persecute us because we are righteous and we pursue him. Uh, and he will begin to address today, or I think he will address today, how we live lives of prayerful confidence in the midst of that kind of a world. And I think that's the main idea here, verses 6 through 12 of Matthew chapter 7, is that our lives should be lived with prayerful confidence. We should live with prayerful confidence. Um, so if you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew 7. We'll be reading verses 6 through 12. It's on page 812 in the Pew Bibles. If you've got those, take, take one of those and, and open it there. And let's listen as Jesus um, yeah, instructs us on one more time uh, going to God in prayer. So starting in verse 6, chapter 7, Jesus says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask and it will be given you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask Him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Take that central section there, and you see that idea, our lives should be lived with prayerful confidence. He starts, I, I'm going to say, we'll think about appeasement, appeasing the world. We shouldn't expect that to work. Appeasement. That'll be the first thing we think about in verse 6. Then we'll look at prayer, ask, seek, and find, and knock, ask, seek, and knock. And then close with being perfect, as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Whatever you wish others would do to you, do to them. So appeasement, prayer, and being perfect. That's the outline for our meditation today on these verses from 6 to 12. As we think about lives of prayerful confidence and how that helps us, and it should be the way we live all of, our, all of our lives interacting with the world, who, Jesus says, is very likely to persecute us if we really try to live lives of holiness. So, first point, don't, beloved, don't appease the world. Don't appease the world. Now, how do I get that on the It says, verse 6, uh, don't give dogs what is holy, and don't throw your pearls to pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. What on earth is Jesus saying, talking about pig dogs? That's a line from, well, maybe you can name that movie, uh, Monty Python's Quest for the Holy Grail. It's the French insult to the English, you pig dogs. And I didn't realize it until this week that it's probably from here. Um, don't appease the world. What is he saying? It's a difficult verse, no doubt. The commentators wrestle, scholars disagree. Let's see what we can do. So first, we just got to get the image in our head 
First, you'll notice, uh, the first thing to say, it's an A-B-B-A pattern. What do I mean by that? So he talks about uh, throwing holy things to dogs and pearls to pigs. And then, so that's A-B, and then it works backwards. It's the pigs who will trample the pearls and the dogs who will turn to attack you. So the outer parts go together, the inner parts go together. Don't give what's holy to dogs. They might turn to attack you. Don't give your pearls to pigs. Uh, they'll trample them underfoot. So that's, that's how you put all the four little bits together. Um, the second thing is, just to say, by way of understanding the image, pearls are really precious. They still have an air of sort of um, elegance and luxury, but before people figured out how to artificially grow them, they were super rare. You had to go harvest shellfish, and then you find them in the mollusk, and they were, you know, and only a certain of those even did it. So super rare, incredibly expensive. Every time they're mentioned in the Bible, they are like top tier of cost. So we're not, you know, these aren't farm harvested pearls. These are super precious treasures that you'd be throwing to pigs. And then thirdly, we think about dogs. We think about dogs as pets in our context. But in the Bible, they're almost always wild animals. So don't think about your pet dog. Um, in the Psalms, particularly, there are always rabid enemies. If you ever hear dogs in the Psalms, they are coming after the psalmist with a view to killing, tearing, destroying. Um, in Exodus 22:31, God commanded Israel, you shall be set apart to me, right? You shall be holy. Therefore, he, he told them, you shall not eat any flesh torn by beasts in the field, right? Roadkill. You don't eat that. You throw it to the dogs. The dogs were unclean. They were outside. You gave the nasty, maggoty roadkill to them. And that is the image behind what Jesus has going on here. When he says, don't throw holy things to dogs, I think it's that image. Don't take your holy food. Um, in the ritual ceremonies of the tabernacle and the temple, there was food that was set apart as holy. It was set apart for sacrifice, and only the priests could eat that food. And you don't take that devoted food, that, that food set apart for the holy people, and, and, and throw it to the unclean dogs. Don't give holy food to the dogs. They still might turn and attack you. And don't throw your precious treasured pearls to pigs. They don't appreciate them. They're probably just trampling them underfoot. So those are the realities about the animal world. Why on earth is Jesus mentioning it? What does he mean? Because he really is probably not worried that anybody's going to literally take their pearl necklace and throw it in the pigsty. And it is not obviously clear. You'll find a bunch of different ideas. They don't even agree. The scholars don't even agree where it goes. Does it end? the section from one, verses 1 to 5, or does it start the section from verses 6 and beginning verse, and then verse 7? You can tell if you've got the ESV open. The ESV translators put it at the end of the previous section, and you can tell from this sermon that I think it starts the next section, which maybe is just a good reminder that the headings in your Bibles are not inspired. They're not Scripture, right? Uh, Matthew didn't write those headings. The Spirit didn't inspire them. Editors have put those in to help us. Um, but it's not Bible, so you can ignore them. And come to your own conclusions, which I've done here. I think it goes with what comes next, right? It's the beginning of the last section. And I say that because that's how the, that has been Jesus' pattern since chapter 6. Every instruction since chapter 6, verse 1 has been, don't do this, instead do that. So a negative command, something to avoid, and then a positive command to do instead. So don't give alms or pray uh, or fast like the hypocrites. Instead, give alms and pray and fast in secret, right? Don't store up your treasures on earth. Instead, store them in heaven. Don't be anxious about your life. Uh, instead, seek the kingdom first. Don't judge. Instead, take the speck out of your own eye or take the log out of your own eye before you try to help each other. So we have the same pattern here. Don't throw what's holy and precious to the animals. Instead, ask, seek, knock. So why, well, again, so why is Jesus telling this, this little parable? And well, in the Bible, whenever dogs and pigs occur in the same verse, it's always outsiders who are rebellious. Uh, rebellious against God, enemies of God. 
And so Matthew is saying, Jesus is saying, don't take the holy things that are set apart for the worship of God and toss them and try to pay off outsiders, unbelievers, non-Christians with them. Don't toss away to the world what God says is precious. It won't impress them. It will not impress the world if you take what God says is precious and try to, try to throw it to them like you would pearls to pigs. Don't give away to the world what God says is holy. It will not keep them from attacking you. Now, if you get that in mind, you can think Israel's history shows them doing that all the time. Just one example in the Christmas season, the, the king Ahaz, uh, who Isaiah gave the prophecy of the virgin birth to, said, like, the sign for you will be a virgin will give birth. That king, uh, we read about him in 2 Kings 16, 8. He was afraid of uh, the Syrians, the Syrians who were north. We just had a computer panic. That's what happened back there. I'm just going to press on. Um, he was afraid of the Syrians in the north, like dark, you know, no light. Um, and so what he did, this is what 2 Kings 16.8 says, uh, that he took the silver and gold that were found in the house of the Lord. He took the holy things and the treasures of the king's house, his precious pearls, and he sent them as a present to the king of Assyria. He emptied the temple and he emptied his treasuries to go bribe the king of Assyria. Hey, will you please go attack the Syrians so they won't come attack me? That was his point. And you see this repeatedly in the monarchy uh, in Israel that um, they try to take the holy things and pay off others so that they don't get attacked. Do you know what Assyria did? Assyria took their money. Assyria went to war with Syria, won, and then Assyria turned their sights on Judah. And that's why Ahaz needed the prophecy of Emmanuel, because he's, you know, God, unless God had intervened, Ahab's plan to buy off the Assyrians only empowered his enemies against him. And God had to directly intervene. So what would that sound like for us today, right? Not to give holy things to try to appease the world, to try to bribe them off, that kind of thing. Uh, it would look like this. I think it says like this. Like, if we give up inerrancy, if we say maybe the Bible has errors, will you guys just leave us alone? What, what about exclusivity? If we, if we say maybe Jesus isn't the only way, but he's like the best way, will you listen, please? Will you give us a hearing then instead of being mad at us? How about monogamous heterosexual lifelong marriage? If we stop insisting on that, can we get along? Will you just leave us alone? What about, what about authority? Nobody likes authority these days. Everybody hates authorities. <clears throat> so if Jesus is just a good guide or a guru, but not a king who can tell you what to do. Maybe we can live in peace together. We have the same temptation, right? We see the world that's hostile and we think, how can we, how can we get along? And we're tempted. Give to them these precious things of God. Give them up. Stop insisting. Soften our rhetoric. Don't say what God says is true. Uh, don't surrender, beloved, the goodness of God's sexual ethics to try to get the world to like you. Or even to make peace around your family table. Don't avoid talking about sin hoping that more people will be interested in Jesus if you just downplay the sin part and talk about the good parts. A Jesus who doesn't call your sin what it is is not the Jesus who reigns over heaven and earth. Don't expect you can compete um, and compromise your faith for your HR department, and that will ensure you keep your job. Don't think that pressuring people to, you know, into baptism or, or taking the Lord's Supper will eternally change them if they don't come to their own faith in Christ. See the gospel and repent and believe. I mean, these are the kinds of things... We see a world that's hostile. Jesus has prepared us for that at the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when they persecute you. They will. He told those disciples sitting on the hill around him, and they're going to slander you. They're going to say vile things about you. 
Rejoice and be glad in that day because your reward is great in heaven. And don't think that you're going to be able to talk people who hate Jesus into getting along with you by giving up the things that God has entrusted to you. And most, most centrally, beloved, on that is the gospel. If we downplay a holy God who judges our sin, thinking that will win us a hearing with the world and make them get along with us, they're going to find out, one, we don't actually believe our own Bible because it's super clear. And two, they're not going to come to faith in the real Jesus who actually was returning and whom they will stand before. So don't try to appease the world. As Jesus has taught us to live, he's, you know, he said at the end of chapter 5, be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect, be complete and whole. As you do that, as you live that way in the world, you'll engender hostility, people who don't want Jesus to reign over them or over you or in the world. And what you'll be tempted to do is panic and worry and try to control. Don't do it. Don't, don't appease the world. Instead, pray with confidence. You don't need to satisfy the world because you have a good father. So ask and seek and knock. And grab it on your own. Try to work it on your own. Figure out kind of by worldly wisdom, how can we make the church more secure or how can we make the gospel more palatable or how can we get political authority to make sure, you know, everything, everything goes well. No, Jesus says, you've got a good father. <laughs> Talk to him about what you need ask seek and knock and he gives these commands right don't do don't do that thing instead do this ask seek knock with these sweeping assurances verse 7 it will be given to you ask and it will seek you will find knock and it will be opened and if that wasn't clear enough, he doubles down in verse 8 and says, if everyone who asks receives, everyone. And that everyone goes with all three of those categories. Everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. Everyone who knocks will have it opened to them. Those are sweeping, should be encouraging, confidence-building promises. So we pray with confidence. Now people have taken that as unrestricted assurance that God will give you whatever you want. And if you only had verses, you know, 7 and 8, you might be able to conclude that, but we don't have verses 7 and 8. Jesus takes big truths and condenses them down into short sayings that you can remember. I mean, this is, this is a clearly a saying that's designed for you to be able to call back. Ask, seek, knock. Ask, and you'll be given. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and it'll be opened. So whenever you take big truths and turn them down into short Memorable truths, you lose the nuance to gain the memorable, right? Make it memorable. Of course, we, only don't, we don't only have the, the short, pithy statement. We're supposed to know, be able to unpack like a suitcase. We're supposed to be able to unpack all, all that Jesus wants us from that statement. That's not a criticism. That's a good thing. It's a good thing to get to simplicity. Jesus is clearly doing it. Um, but he's put this pithy ask, seek, knock at the very end of his sermon. Uh, and the whole sermon is, of course, in the context of the whole Bible. So he's already taught us how to ask, hasn't he? In chapter 6, he taught us how to pray. He told us what to ask for. He doesn't have to say it again here in chapter 7 because those disciples are on the hillside and they were listening to the whole thing. They heard him say, ask that God would make his name holy. Ask that God's kingdom would come. Ask that God would cause his will to be done on earth just like it's done in heaven. So when you ask, start by asking with 
God in mind, his glory and his holiness. Start with him. Make your name holy, your kingdom come. Let me do your will, let our church do your will, Lord God. Let, let your will be done. And in Wolforth, South Plains, Lubbock, you know, Lubbock County, when you think about the wars that Gerald mentioned as part of the thing about the prayer of confession, ask that God's will be done there. God would glorify his name. Christians in that place would be sustained and strengthened, that they would have what they need, just like we have what we need. I mean, that's the prayer Jesus taught us to ask for, give us our daily bread. Just give us what we need, God. God, forgive us like we forgive each other. And free us from Satan's temptations. Rescue us. He's taught us what to ask for. This is not a blank check. He's talking to disciples who know what they're supposed to be asking for. He's taught us what to seek. Not treasures on earth. Not even necessities, right? Food and drink and clothing. Things that you die if you don't get. Don't even seek those first. Seek the kingdom of God first and God's righteousness. That's what we seek. We want God to give us his righteousness through faith in Jesus. We want God to make us righteous to reflect that faith in Jesus. We want the reign of God to be evident. We want it to be clear in our lives Monday through Saturday this week. We want it to be clear when we gather, the things we sing and and pray, uh, open the Bible and talk about. Uh, We want it to be clear in everything we do that God is reigning. And Jesus is on the throne and we are his people. So ask and seek. And he's about to tell us what gate to knock on in verse 13. Lord willing, next week we'll unpack that. But the narrow gate. The narrow gate that leads to the hard way that results in eternal life. That's the gate that he wants us to knock on. That's the door that will be opened to us. The narrow one. So we can walk on a hard way. But he tells us ahead of time it's going to be hard. Not a bait and switch there. Because we know that that hard way will lead to eternal life. That's what we're supposed to knock on. Does that sound like a good deal to you? These sweeping promises that if you ask for the things that Jesus has taught us to ask for, if you seek God's kingdom and his righteousness and you knock on this gate that leads to a hard way that results in eternal life, that's a great deal and you should do that. I'll tell you why you will think it's a good deal is if you're convinced that God is a good, great, generous father. Once you're convinced of that, you'll say, well, if that's what I've been taught to ask for, if that's what I'm supposed to seek, if that's the gate I'm supposed to knock on, man, what a deal. Which is the illustration Jesus gives, right? He takes you to just a very domestic household, like if you're a kid, says, Dad, I'd like some bread. Which dad is going to give you a rock? There, kid, go eat that. Or, you know, a fish. I'm hungry, can I have some fish? Here's a snake instead. I mean, some of you dads might do that jokingly. I know some of you, you're practical jokers, but you wouldn't seriously think that you're going to sustain your kid's life, right? I mean, your children. And Jesus, you know, as if you do that, and you're evil. <laughs> Which just again strikes me about the way that it's just so clear Jesus did not consult the marketing gurus when he crafted his message. He's got these disciples sitting around him, and he's spinning out these illustrations and telling them what they can do. And not only has he said it's going to be really hard, they literally said, you guys are evil hypocrites. I mean, he did that last week, right? And talked about the logs and the specs, and he said, you hypocrite. Verse 5, and then now, and this, you know, that was the next to last section, and then this section, he says, you know, you guys are evil, and you still know how to give good things to your kids. I mean, I, look at you guys. <clears throat> no marketing consultants here, right? He's just been laying out his vision of being true and godly and good and whole people, perfect. Like our Heavenly Father is perfect, which means whole and complete. Like from, from the innermost parts to the outermost actions, everything is all in line together. 
with godliness and holiness, just like our God our Father is. He's been teaching us how to live lives of righteousness and prayer and fasting and, and mercy that are not like the hypocrites, but, but instead are sincere, righteous before God, draw near to him, and how we can have confidence in him. And right as he's wrapping all that up, right, with these great visions of glorious godliness and God's goodness, he just, he says, you know, he just kind of throws it away, like it's just assumed, like you guys are hypocrites who are evil. So it turns out that the evil we need delivering from is in us. And the hypocrisy we need to be better than is our own. And when we listen and learn from Jesus, that's exposed. We read the sermon and maybe, you know, we work through all of Jesus' teaching about anger and lust and, and divorce and, you know, keeping our words and not retaliating, but instead loving our neighbors and how to, how to do righteous things to be seen by God and not others. And, and we, we try to do that if we're sincere and we really think Jesus is, you know, the best teacher who's ever lived, the one who God has sent to teach us. Even just if you have that, you try to do it, and you, you don't get very far if you're sincere without that evil hypocrisy being exposed. You're like, man, I, this is really hard. Like, love all my enemies? All of them? Pray, pray, for that, pray for that guy? Pray for her? I don't want to do that. I'm not perfect like my Heavenly Father is perfect. I'm not whole and complete like he is. And we're, we're exposed. I mean, Jesus, I think knows that by the time we get here if they don't know it yet they will as they keep trying to follow him that their evil hypocrisy our evil hypocrisy will come out and you know who it is that jesus says ask seek and knock it's those people it's exactly those people those evil hypocrites gathered around him on the hillside that jesus has no illusions about that he says if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will your father who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him. It's exactly those people who he looks at and says, your father is good and great and generous to you. And you know the chief example of that was the one who was teaching them on the top of that hillside that day. He gave his son so that when we see that we're evil hypocrites and we're willing to admit that, we're not stuck fearing the condemnation we deserve. But we have hope because the only one who's never not been, ever not been an evil hypocrite went to the cross to take our sin so that our hypocrisy, our evilness, our, our twisted against, ways against God would fall on him. To die for our evil, he gave his son. He's a generous father. Uh, so Gerald, I said it before, but friend, if, if you haven't turned to look at Christ and see him, as the gift of God to you for your salvation so that you can be honest about yourself before God and still have hope. Look to Christ in that. He shed his blood so you could be forgiven. Your sins deserve death just as mine do, as all of ours do. And Christ went to the cross for us so that we could have this hope. We could walk the narrow path. Ask for God to glorify himself and give us what we need and he provided what we need. He gives us Jesus. He's the generous father who gives his spirit freely. Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father, sent the Spirit to the church so that every one of us who's come to faith in Christ has the very Spirit of God dwelling in us. So that when Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, we can say, wow, big gap. Who can do that? And then we can immediately say, oh, well, I can actually because I have the Spirit of God living in me. Because that's what God is doing by his Spirit as I see Christ. is changing me. So that I do become more and more like uh, the Savior who saved me, who died for me. To secure us and sanctify us, he gave his spirit without measure. I mean, just overflowing with, without measure. 
so that we would know and be secured and, and see Jesus face to face as we will one day. And he gives us, and I think this is particularly what Jesus means here, uh, he gives us everything we need to do what God wants us to do. When we ask for the thing God, God teaches us to ask for, he will provide them. Salvation from sin, forgiveness, deliverance from temptation, everything we need, our daily bread, to do what he wants us to do so that when we pray that God's name would be holy and his kingdom would come and his will would be done, that we can actually do that. Not all of it all over the world, but in your life, in your household, your neighborhood. So especially maybe, I mean, it's always true, right? But especially in the face of a hostile culture and the fear of what might happen at work or neighborhoods or around family, or what has happened around family tables this week. Don't grab control like you can work that out and keep yourself safe. Instead, ask God. Seek his kingdom. Knock on his door, the gate to his way. Ask for the good things Jesus taught you to ask for. Seek his kingdom and his righteousness above everything else. Knock on that narrow gate so that you can walk that hard road that leads to life and you will be heard and answered and you will receive and you will find and you will be welcomed by a great and generous father. And what we'll find is that Jesus will keep all his promises, that that is where eternal life really is. It's not in appeasing the world so that we can get along and cope. It's in being faithful to Jesus. So we can live the life he's called us to live. Prayerful confidence. Prayerful confidence. Confidence that when we talk to God about what's going on in our lives, in our tables, in our families, in our world, that he hears us. Confidence that he's taught us how to ask and shaped even our desires so that we'll ask for the right things, we'll look for the right things, the things that will actually give us life. Because what Jesus doesn't say is, what do you do if your kid asks for the third piece of, you know, pecan pie? And you say, no. <laughs> That's too much. You're evil. And you even know when your kids ask for bad things not to give it to them. And so does our Heavenly Father. How much more? How much more does he know that when we ask him for the wrong things, to hear in those requests what would actually be good for us in that situation we're praying about? To know with a better wisdom than we even have to give us what would be really good for us or for that person or for our families or for the world. He does. He is a great, good, generous Father. So he can even take our bad prayers, know what we really would want if we understood what we were asking for, and answer them exactly as we would have asked if we knew what he knows. Good and great and generous, which is a difficult thing to live in, like Israel in exile. The situation in, in that reading from Jeremiah there's false prophets among the exiles in Babylon telling them, in the, uh, the context of Jeremiah, right, don't settle down, don't get comfortable, God is powerful, we won't be here long. And so God sends Jeremiah to say, hey, ignore all that, you're going to be there 70 years. So pray for the city where you live, have kids there, you have marriages there, plant roots. Because I've got 70 years for you while you're in exile, but I think this sounds to me like what Jesus has in mind when he gives us his teaching today, Jeremiah 12. But when those years are up, I have plans for you. I'm going to give you a hope and a future. You will call on me and come pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. 
I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I'll restore your fortunes and gather you from the nation. So as Israel had that promise in exile, that at the right time and the right way for the good of all the world, God would bring the exiles back to Israel. We have that promise today. At the right time and the right way for the good of all the world, God will send Christ and bring us home. Exactly the right time. Plans for a hope and a future. And so we can just pray with utter confidence. Um, what, let, me, let me tell you what, what it doesn't mean. So I'm going to go back. I'm going to backtrack to something I forgot. When Jesus says, don't throw your pearls to pigs and the holy things to the dogs, some people have taken that to mean there are certain people you shouldn't share the gospel with. It's too dangerous. That is not what Jesus means. And I, I say that because if it is, the apostles did a really bad job of learning. Because <laughs> they're just always sharing the gospel with people they know are going to hate them or beat them or throw them out or even kill them. So in focus, in, in Sunday school, uh, the student Sunday school, we're looking at Acts chapter 4, where Peter and John are in front of the Jewish ruling priests. And uh, they're there because dude, God's power has healed a guy. And they got the evidence that the power of God has worked because this crippled man who's been crippled for 40 years is now walking, right? And the priests see that. And they see Peter and John, and they see their confidence, Right there, on trial. And they say, whose authority are you doing this in? And, you know, Peter and John are like, well, if you're asking us who we did this good deed, who did this good deed? Well, I'll tell you, it's Jesus, whom you killed. I mean, you know, if you were trying to protect yourself, if, if you were thinking pearls before pigs means be careful who you're sharing the gospel with, I think that's the place where you're like, man, keep your mouth shut. All you have to do is say, yeah, it was Jesus' name that healed the guy, and you could stop. But that's what Peter does. Peter says, it's Jesus who healed this guy, whom you crucified, by the way. You killed him, but God raised him to life. He's the cornerstone that you rejected. And like literally, the guys who are sitting there are the people who condemned Jesus to death. Cornerstone you rejected, but God has made the cornerstone. And there's no other name by which you can be saved. Like right there. Bold confidence, prayerful confidence, spirit-anointed confidence. Just do and say and live according to all that they had seen and heard. We should mark our lives because we have a good father like they knew they have a good father who put a good king on the throne over us after he died for our sins. So if you think about praying for us and our church and our world, prayerful confidence. Because if you, when we have that, when, when we do what Jesus says here with the confidence that Jesus says we can have, that actually grounds us to be able to live out the rest of what he's taught. We're going to face hostility. It's going to be difficult. Living the way Jesus taught us to live, fulfilling the law and the prophets, being perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect is incredibly hard. It's hard because we have fights within. It's hard because we have resistance without. And the confident prayerfulness that we know we have the ear of a God who is great and good and generous fuels us to live that kind of faithful life. So he summarizes the entire sermon and really the entire Old Testament. Everything God expects of us in verse 12, don't try to appease the world. Instead, pray with this prayerful confidence. And when that is your life, you will be able to, to live this perfect life. The perfect life that God, perfect like God is perfect. So point three, verse 12, do what you want for others. That's the summary of the whole sermon. Do what you want for others. Whatever you wish others would do for you or do to you, do to them. For that is the law and the prophets. And it was a reference to the Old Testament. He, he started the sermon that way. He, he gave us the introductory Beatitudes, right? Blessed are these kind of people. 
And then he opens the main section in chapter 5, verse 12. He says, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish, but fulfilled them. And then, so it's like the starting bookend and this ending bookend. It encapsulates this entire central section, right, from 512 uh, all the way, and 517 all the way to 712. Is that reference to the law and the prophets? Everything he said teaches us how to live the way God's always wanted his people to live. What you want others to do for you, do for them. What you want, the way you want others to treat you, treat them. That's it. That's how the perfect child of a perfect father lives. That's a summary of everything he calls us to. And again, right, condensed statements can be misused. It's very memorable. And so it loses all the nuance, which we pick up from all the rest of the, what he said. Uh, so it's easy to twist. So I got three ways that we can twist it. Uh, the first is to do for others what they do to you. I have a distinct memory on my driveway in Bryan, Texas. I don't know why I remember this, but I have a distinct memory of pulling that line on my mother. I'm supposed to do what they do to me, right? Which is not at all what Jesus says. It's in fact the opposite of what Jesus says. But it sounds really close, doesn't it? The words are almost there, and it's exactly how we naturally operate. So we twist it. Do for others what they do for you. That's not what Jesus says. That's how I twist it. That's how we all attempt to twist it. I, I have memories of my children twisting and being like, I, I recognize that. You got that for me. That's how she treated me. He did it first. But of course, Jesus flips that exactly around. So we're learning to love our neighbor even when our neighbor is our enemy. Even when they treat us badly, the question is not, how do they treat you? The question is, how would you want to be treated? What would I want done for me if I was in his place? So be careful of that, right? Be careful of that, that sense of like, well, he must want to be treated that way because that's how he treated me. So that's what I'm going to do to him. No, <laughs> no, no. That's the worst, I think that's the natural sort of default way that we, we do vengeance and retaliation. We justify it because they did it first. The second way is if, um, a modern way to twist it. This is what our modern world would say is do for others what they want you to do for them. What do they want? Well, just do that. Love is love, right? And if you love them, you'll just celebrate whatever they want, whatever they think, whatever they feel. You can't, you can't contradict or push back. Do for others what they want you to do for them. And man, that sounds really nice. That sounds other-centered, doesn't it? It sounds like you're really caring about them. Which is why it, it has this resonance because it sounds so much like what Jesus says. And we've got, you know, a couple of centuries, well, more than a couple of centuries of Bible saturating our culture and our expectations. Uh, it's a modern twist, but man, it's, it's really actually very destructive, right? You just take what everybody else wants at face value and then treat them that way. Uh, you just really have to think about what happened if you indulged your toddlers like that. If you just gave them everything they wanted and how badly that would go for their lives. You'd be destroying their lives. And just realize that's true for everybody. Adults, kids, all of us. If we just got everything we wanted, that would destroy our lives. It's a self-destructive uh, truth, a lie, twist of the truth, that sounds really good. Right? Just do for others what they want you to do for them. No, that's not what Jesus said either. He said, do for others what you would want if you were in their place. And so there's the third way you can twist it. You can get all those words right. You can get it all in the right order. You can think you put yourself in their shoes, but then as long as sin is still twisting our wants, we'll twist the way we apply it. As long as what I would want in their shoes is still marred by my own sin, then I'll have trouble applying it the way Jesus is calling us to apply it. I don't think it's a mistake that this pithy statement comes at the very end of three full chapters or, you know, 
about two full chapters of very particular situations of teaching us how to live so that we have some idea about what we should want before Jesus says, so think about what you'd want and treat people like that. As far as your heart remains twisted by sin, what you'll want is twisted. And the more you know and love Jesus, the more you'll want what he wants, which is what our Father in heaven wants. And so what he actually says is you, disciple of Jesus, baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? I'm learning to do all that Jesus has commanded. What would you want if you were in that person's, if you were in your neighbor's place? Uh, because asking that question is not really as easy as you think. Answering that question. Asking is easy. Sorry, answering it is not so easy. That could be a good exercise this afternoon. Let me challenge you with that. If you haven't written those, those three things down, and then, of course, Jesus' statement in verse 12 is, is to take somebody, come to mind that you've had some trouble with this week. Bring somebody to mind you've had some conflict. And just work through each of those ways. It's okay, if I was going to treat that person like they treated me, what would I do? I'm just going to twist it according to way one, right? Treat them the way they treated me. If I was going to do that, what would I do? Okay. What about the second way? If I was just going to give them what they wanted, what would I do? All right. Well, if I was going to treat them the way I would want, but, but still in my sinful ones, what would I do? And then finally, like, try to think, what would Jesus want me to do if, if I was in that place? How would I want somebody to treat me according to what Jesus taught? Work, work through that. It, it'll take some time. It'll stretch your brain. It'll be convicting. It'll be hard. It's not as easy as watching football, I know. But man, it can be really helpful try to unpack what Jesus says. This is all the law and the prophets. I mean, this is summarizing everything the Bible says about how we should treat people. It's worth spending some time on. Work through that. So let's just do a couple of examples together. I'll take one um, from the first one from this very first teaching on anger in 521. Think about the person that you would be tempted to call fool. That guy's a fool. And Jesus warned us, right, that that makes you liable to judgment. So, so what would you do? You've got somebody who's acting the fool, and you're just like, man, that well, if you treated him like he treats you, I think you'd be tempted uh, to make all the ways that you make his life hard justified because he deserves it. Anyway, you act foolish back, you can just excuse if you were you know, twisting it to treat him like he's treated you. What about the second way? What if you treated him like he wants to be treated? Well, then you'd indulge his folly and you'd help him along with his self-destructive life. Well, if you ask, if I was a fool like that, what would I want done for me? I think a pretty quick answer, people who come to know Jesus, is I'd want someone to slap me upside the head and set me straight. I think that's easy to say. I doubt you'd really want that. I think you'd probably come to something like this. I'd want someone, if I'm, okay, think about the guy. He's a fool. If, if I was him, what would I want? I think I'd want someone to think carefully and pray diligently about how they could help me grow in wisdom in a way that I would actually listen to them. I don't want them to tell me the truth and help me be wise in a way that I might listen to them with an attitude and an approach that would open me up to that instead of closing me down. Now, that's hard. <laughs> that's, I think, the kind of thing you do when you really try to put yourself in their shoes and then don't indulge your anger. Don't indulge that. You know, Jesus warned you. Instead, go be reconciled. So what would you do? Okay, so that's one example. Let's take the example from the final beatitude, right? Blessed are you when they persecute you. Think about that hostile coworker or teammate or classmate who just thinks Christians are awful bigots. And is pretty clear and vocal with you. If you don't have one of those, you maybe just try to imagine that, right? Uh, isn't shy to tell you they think every Christian is an awful bigot. Well, twist it the first way. 
just treat her like she's treated you, you'll just excuse all your name-calling back. You'll just indulge the angry name-calling. You shouldn't do that. Okay, all right. What about the second way? If I just treated her the way she wanted to be treated? Well, you'd say something like, well, she doesn't want to hear that she's opposing God. She, she, doesn't, she doesn't want to hear that. She doesn't want that conversation. So I'll just keep my commands. To, I'll just keep God's commands to myself. I just won't say anything. And just let her do what she wants. And help her walk, into, walk her way into hell unchallenged. You treated her like she wanted to be treated. But then you do start with you and Jesus says, if I was her, what would I want done? Well, I want someone to challenge me and give me a chance. Right, that's easy. But think a little more carefully about what it would actually look like, right? The speck in the log and, and your own sins. And I think you come to something like, I would want someone to tell me the truth. I mean, she's going to stand before Jesus. And if you're in that spot, you want someone to tell you, you're going to stand before Jesus one day and account for all of this. You'd want them to do that, but as far as they can, I think I'd also want them to show me that God's ways are good. I'd want them to work to show me that not, yeah, not, not only are Christians, uh, well, Christians can be bigots, and we confess that, but if we really live Jesus' way, he turns our prejudices and our pride and our self-regard on its head and transforms us into people who love everybody. I'd want someone who would work to show me that. God's ways really are good. And we do all struggle with that. You and me and all of us together. That's what I think I'd want. As best I can tell. So, I'll work it through. I just I'm give it over to you, beloved. It can be a good challenge. Uh, it was helpful for me. Uh, thinking through even those two. You think about life in your household, husbands and wives, children and parents, all those kinds of things. What if you twisted it? Because you're going to naturally find those things coming out. And then try to work really hard. Apply the five, six, and seven for Matthew. If I'm learning to live like Jesus, what would I really want if I was in that case? And of course, surely we'd answer, at the very least, in every case, I'd want someone to be praying for me. If I was really a fool, I would want someone to pray that I'd grow in wisdom. If I was really a, a hostile to God, I'd want someone to pray I'd be growing in wisdom. If I was at odds with a brother or sister in Christ, I'd want somebody praying for me that would be humble before God and then we'd have restored relationships. I would want someone praying with this confident prayer that when we ask and seek and find for God's will to be done and to give us what we need and to deliver us from Satan's temptations, that he will do it. I'd want someone like that praying for me. So pray, beloved, for them. Bring them before God. Because you know what God does. God turns vicious dogs and pigs into children. <laughs> he changes us. He's the one that can work the heart change to totally turn us on our heads so that we go from being proud and rebellious to being humble and submitted and, and full of joy. And he can do that for all of them too. In your life and mine and everywhere. So we pray. So, so we get that kind of clarity, that kind of how do I love and seek after others with the kind of confidence to take risks, to love even when we're not being loved, even our enemies with this prayerful confidence that God is a good and great and gracious father. That you will receive and find and be welcomed by him who loves you perfectly. Loved you not at, the not, not at the risk of his own son, but at the cost of his own son. So that we could be sons and daughters. Man, shouldn't we be thankful? Shouldn't we be confident? And shouldn't we talk to dad a lot? Let's do that. Let's pray together. We are really thankful, Lord God, that you have saved us. We, we don't even remotely deserve for your son to look at us, evil hypocrites, and give his life for us. And yet he did so that we could be forgiven and cleansed and transformed and made perfect like you. And we can't wait for the day 
when Christ comes back and we are glorified, that we really will be perfect, complete, and whole, just like you, our Father. We will represent you perfectly. We'll be made like our Savior. What a great day that'll be. Thank you for the confidence that we can have that you are keeping that promise. Help us, Lord God, as we look for that day, to live this day with that prayerful confidence. In Jesus' name, amen.